speak on murder tonight <laughs> and uh, anger. Uh, so, um, happy Christmas. And uh, why don't you grab a Bible and turn to page 917. <coughs> 917, chapter 5, going to be reading from verse 21. We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching to the multitudes. Just let's pause before we read and let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Lord, we just welcome you by your Spirit. We thank you for your love for each one of us. We thank you that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, born into that stable, taking on flesh, living as one of us, dying on a cross, rising again, that we could all come home, that we could be part of your family, that we could live like Jesus and reflect your glory. We pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, that you'd fill each one of us now, equip us to hear your word, to have hearts ready to respond, minds eager to learn, able to grasp these truths. And Lord, be with me as I speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there. In front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So Christmas is coming. All the fun, the celebration, the joy. Uh, but also, let's be honest, uh, the stress. The stress of Christmas. I think findings, research shows that Christmas can be one of the most stressful times of year. So actually it's a very topical uh, subject to be looking at together at the start of Advent. Uh, I think I read, um, well I did read somewhere, uh, that uh, studies show that um, the average man experiences the same levels of stress whilst out Christmas shopping as that experienced by a fighter jet pilot. Uh, so guys, give me a wave if that's you out there, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that can be the case for all of us. It can be a time of stress. It can be a time of tempers boiling over. Anger can be present in the house just as much as uh, stockings and presents. And... Jesus' teaching here 
is addressing our hearts and addressing this issue that we will all face in our lives. Just bring to mind what we've been learning from the Sermon on the Mount so far these last weeks that we've been looking at it. What we've been seeing is that Jesus is teaching on the law, the eternal law of God given to Moses that stands for all time. And what he's been doing is he's been internalizing it. You may read this stuff and you may think, God, wow, that is hard to keep. I mean, the standard was, was high enough already. And here's Jesus raising the bar even higher. But if you remember, we've looked at how the truth is Jesus was merely returning the bar to the place it was always designed to be, which is super high, which is the level of perfection. He was internalizing the law. He was giving it an impossible standard, which it has. He was holding out the law as a mirror, which is its purpose in our lives. The law is there to act as a mirror for each one of us in order to show us as we look into it how far we, sh- how f- short we all fall of the glory of God. And it's designed, therefore, is not to leave us hopeless or condemned in that place. Its design is to drive us to Christ, to drive us to him who is the saviour, who alone is the one who has achieved that level, who has got over that bar and lived a life of perfection so that we don't have to. And Jesus is teaching throughout the Sermon of the Mount. His message is, if you think you can make it into my kingdom without having me as your saviour, then you're going to have to live a perfect life. You're going to have to be perfect. I don't know about you, but that's not the case with me. Only one man has been perfect, and that is Jesus. And that's what we see going on in this passage again today. We see Jesus raising the bar. We see him internalizing the law. We see him talking about murder. Now, murder is is an issue that's rife today across the the world. Studies in America, uh, this is a couple of decades ago, I stumbled on this data. Uh, But it shows that 25,000 murders murders happen a year in America. Back in the 70s, uh, a baby born in the 70s, hello, uh, in one of the 50 largest cities in America, had a 2% chance of being murdered. I mean, that struck me. I don't know about you. That sounds quite high, doesn't it? I mean, a 2% chance. It's ridiculous. You're more likely, uh, when this data was being compiled, you were more likely, if you lived in one of those cities, to be killed uh, by being murdered than a U.S. soldier was likely to be killed in World War II. Shocking. It's a reality in this day and age. And it's a serious issue. The Bible takes it seriously. Right there in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God's Word says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now you might look at the law, you might look at that law, it's one of the Ten Commandments, you'll be pleased to hear. (laughs) You might hear Jesus talking about murder here, and you might be tempted to dial out, saying saying to yourself, well, you know, good, I can take it easy tonight, because I've never murdered anyone. (laughs) Haven't even thought about it. I mean, don't you find that's often the way people think? You know, friends of yours who might not be churchgoers, they might not be Christians, you talk to them about things, like ask them how they feel, like, how do you feel? See a relationship with God. How, how do you feel with regard to God? And people begin justifying themselves, don't they? And almost the first thing they say is like, oh, I don't know, I'm all right. I, mean, you know, I haven't murdered anyone. 
And they think just because they literally haven't murdered anyone, that they're on good terms with God. That that's the benchmark, that's the standard. Well, Jesus says that isn't the standard. He here raises the bar yet again. He internalizes it. He points to our hearts and he goes deeper. And he makes it about our thought life as much as about our acts. You notice that with things? Really annoying. Jesus, you know, coming along saying, you know, it's, it's not just that you can't commit adultery, send of the men on the hillside 2,000 years ago. It's not that you can't commit adultery. He's, even if you look at a woman and lust after them in your heart, you're committing adultery. You can't even do that. The guy's like, what? Jesus, really? He goes after the heart. He goes after the thought life. He internalizes. And it's here that he's saying, it's not enough that you just don't murder someone. You can't even be angry with them. Wow. I reckon if I asked us to do a show of hands as to anyone who has murdered someone tonight, no hands would go up. But give, give me a wave if, if you've ever lost your temper with someone. If you've ever been angry towards someone. I mean, literally, give me a hand in the air, or I will accuse you of lying to your face. <laughs> we all know what that is. We all know what it is to be angry. But the key thing to know, Jesus here, where he's saying, um, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. The key thing to, to hold in mind is that Jesus is not saying that it is, it is always wrong to be angry. Jesus knows about righteous anger. He knows that it's right to be angry against injustice, against the abuse of children, against the trafficking of men and women into slavery, even in the 21st century. He knows and agrees that it is right to have righteous anger against these things. Jesus himself got angry, didn't he? Think of the temple when he goes in and they're, all selling and buying doves and silvers, you know, being traded and everything. And he makes a cord out of whips. And in his righteous anger, he, he just goes around driving people out of the temple. Saying, my father's house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's righteous anger. Jesus isn't condemning all anger. But what he is saying is that it's not right when we just lose it for an unjustifiable reason. When, I don't know, when we personally get uh, disrespected or we receive an insult or things don't go our way. Life doesn't turn out how we want it to turn out or an election doesn't go the way we want it to go. It's those occasions that Jesus is saying, it's not okay to be angry just for those things. Contrast how we respond, how, how we live, the ups and downs the way anger rises up in us. Contrast it with Jesus. Jesus described in the book of 1 Peter, saying when they hurled their insults at him, talking about his crucifixion, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The word Jesus is using for anger here in Matthew 5 is um, the word orgitso, as I know you know. Um, and the sense that that word carries is that of uh, steaming or simmering. 
You know that kind of anger? It just bubbles away under the surface. You just keep it under control. You know, probably manifests in a bit of passive aggression. You know, sure, you do it with a smile, but it's there. It's simmering. It's boiling. And Jesus is saying it's that kind of anger that contains the very seeds of murder. 1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother, i.e. whoever harbors that anger within himself towards someone, is, that constitutes hatred. And whoever hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And 1 John goes on, You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him or her. In other words, Jesus is saying to be angry, to hate, is to murder another, a brother or sister in our hearts. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you have that anger, that mindset towards someone, if you're basically there wishing they didn't exist, isn't that the equivalent of murdering them in your heart? Physical murder, same result. They wouldn't exist. Metaphorically, in your heart, you're committing the same act. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the bar he's raising it to. And every one of us would have to raise a hand and say, yes, Lord, that's me. I fall short of that perfect standard. Second thing Jesus says here that I want us to look down at, if we could have the passage up, guys. Um, Again, we've looked at anger, and he goes on in uh, verse 22. He says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. I hear a number of you just taking a, breathing a sigh of relief saying, that was a near miss, thank goodness, Raka. <laughs> I don't use that one, uh, not in my vocabulary. Um, I've got other words, but not Raka. If you're thinking like that, then the irony is you're guilty of the same thing that the Pharisees are guilty of. Because that's what the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law, that's what they would do with the law. They would see this perfect standard and they'd think, ooh, that's pretty high. What if we said it just meant this? You know, what if we were allowed to get away with this? In other words, they would think, okay, it's okay to say raka. Or it's okay not to say raka. If you're there thinking, okay, I don't use that exact word, therefore I've got away with it, then you are guilty of the same thing the Pharisees were doing. Because it's the spirit, it's not the language, it's not the exact word, it's the spirit behind the word that is the key. And what Raka tells us is that what that word means essentially is a contempt for someone's intelligence. (laughs) You ever had that occasionally? Driving the roads of London, seeing some manoeuvres being pulled and you're like, (laughs) Raka, (laughs) there you are, (laughs) idiot. Contempt for someone's intelligence. It literally, the word literally means, the commentators, I mean, uh, they've come up with a selection, and I like some of them. Uh, the word can mean nitwit. Ever called anyone a nitwit? <laughs> I know you have. I know you lot. Or blockhead. I know that's some of your favorite. Numbskull. Old school. That's more from the 70s. Uh, bonehead. Oh, my, my favorite. Brainless idiot. <laughs> Racker. You say something like this, you use a word that carries this sense, this spirit. It is to write someone off as worthless. And let's be honest, guys, we've all had those moments where we've lost it. We've lost our temper and we've just 
cuss someone in our mind, in our heart, verbally, whatever it is. We write them off as worthless. The key thing about Jesus' teaching here about raka is that it's not the specifics of the word. It's the tone of voice. Do you ever find yourself adopting a tone of voice in frustration, in anger at someone, a friend, boyfriend, (laughs) most likely, a girlfriend, a father, brother? You ever adopted that tone of voice, that contempt, where you just write them off, even just for a moment? That's what Jesus is saying, raka means. It's a tone of voice more than anything. And if murder is wrong because it is to do away with someone who carries the very image of God within them, isn't it equally wrong to write someone off as a nitwit or a numbskull or have contempt for their very being? Isn't that equally wrong? Because they carry the image of God too. And how does God see them? Whilst you're there, I'm there, calling them a brainless idiot. This is the teaching. This is the internalization. This is the level that Jesus is taking us to. Insulting someone is wrong for the same reason as murder because it takes away someone's dignity. They are a carrier of the image of God. There's a Jewish legend um, that says there was a young rabbi whose name was Simon ben Eliazar. He had just come from a session of learning with his famous teacher. And as he left, he felt really good about himself. He answered the questions appropriately and asked great questions of his teacher. As he basked in his own glory, he passed by this man who was especially unattractive. This man greeted Simon. And the rabbi responded back to this man by saying, You racker. You are so ugly. It's a horrid story, isn't it? (laughs) You are so ugly. Are all men of your town as ugly as you? I'm not quite sure how this guy got through the vetting process to to be a rabbi. But if he'd seen Tim, he wouldn't have. Let's be sure of that. He said that to the man. The man replied (laughs) to the question, are all men of your town as ugly as you? He said, that I do not know. But you go and tell the maker who created me. And ask him how ugly is the creature that he has made. That's what we're talking about, guys. That's the spirit of Jesus' teaching here. That's his opposition to Raka, to writing off anyone. And I know in a busy city, it can be so tempting, can't it? Where we rub shoulders and we bump into people of all different looks, different types, different backgrounds, different smells. Whatever it is, wherever it is. It can be tempting to write people off, but what we need to hold in mind is that person is uniquely made. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are made in the image of God. And perhaps that is the key teaching that we need to take away from tonight. That humanity is not just an accident here on a rock spinning around in a universe that came about by complete chance. Now, humanity is a miracle born in the very mind and heart and imagination of God, the eternal creator, who desired, who desired to have relationship with 
and create a being capable of carrying his very image in this world. And that is what every human being is. So what does it look like to live a life free of anger, free of calling someone racket? It looks like treating others with dignity, with a fearful and holy respect for who they are. Even if we can't see that image altogether now, we are called to be those who call it forth, who prophesy over them their destiny, who tell them where they have come from and where they are going and all that God wants for them in between. Because if we won't do it, the church, then we can be pretty sure that no one else will. Because there's no other narrative under heaven that gives such a high view of human beings as the one held out by Scripture, as the one being pointed to by Jesus. When he says, no man, no woman, no child is worthy of being called Raka. Jesus again goes on. He's dealt with Raka. And then he says, verse 22, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. I, I fear to do an inventory of the last time I called someone a fool. I mean, uh, relatively recently, probably. At least if not verbally, in my heart. You know, the, the, the word fool here, the Greek word is moros. You can imagine, hazard a guess at what English word we get from the Greek word moros. Just change uh, one letter. Um, Moron, just filling in the gaps. <laughs> Do you get there? Brainless. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Moros, moron. It carries the sense, the meaning of stupid, not only stupid, but also godless. <laughs> Quite a strong insult. Moros. Where racker is perhaps contempt for someone's head, contempt for their intelligence, fool carries the sense of a contempt for their heart or for their character. I wonder if this is ringing true, if this is a topic that's landing with you guys tonight, whether anger is something that you confess up to or own, and you know, that actually it can be something that you struggle with. Historically, it's something that I, before I came to Christ, I was known as someone who, who had a temper, who, who carried an anger, a fire within them. When I first became a Christian, I ended up at HDB going to a church service. There was a guy who'd been a couple of years below me at school who saw me wandering around the church and went up to my friend when my friend wasn't with me and said, what's he doing here? Uh, mistrusting my intention. I think he thought I'd come to burn the place down or something. I wonder if you struggle with this, if this has been a stronghold for you in the past. I know anger can be something that flares up with me, particularly, I've mentioned it before, with road rage. Anyone else get that occasionally? It can be so frustrating, can't it? I just got back from a couple of weeks' holiday. Um, and uh, Emma, my girlfriend, was driving me and my dad. My dad was actually off flying to Singapore at the same time as me, believe it or not. Uh, I was going somewhere else. And uh, he was even from Terminal 4, me Terminal 3. Had all the data pack. 
uh, and for some reason decided, isn't it, you like me, like you have, you could leave acres of time to get to the airport, but you somehow managed to sort of whittle away the time until you've literally, we've got to leave now, or, you know, we're going to be later than two hours before. And we'd managed to do that. I still felt relatively relaxed. And we drove to the airport, and we were dropping my dad at Terminal 4, I was Terminal 3. We swung in, plenty of time on, on the clock. Terminal 3, straight ahead. I was like, oh, brilliant, we're right there. I was like, let's just drop dad first. And so then we swung off to Terminal 4 and basically swung into outer space, if you've ever done that drive. Do you know, anyone know what I'm talking about? I mean, Terminal 4 is literally light years away from Terminal 3. And I suddenly realized as we're swinging off, like, oh, uh, it's, it's, it's an hour and 45 minutes till, till my flight. How long till yours, Dad? Oh, I've got four hours. Four, you say. <laughs> um, okay. And we're driving along, we're going miles away, it's raining. And the other side, the traffic's like, we've got to come, oh yeah, you've got to come back this way, have we? With this just line of traffic moving incredibly slowly. It's like, hi, <laughs> do we really? Oh my gosh! And I've got to be honest, like something, I was, you know, it's been a stressful few months. I was looking forward to relaxing. And I was getting in that mindset of relaxing. And then I saw the traffic and I realized it's almost an hour and a half till my flight leaves. And I'm going to Terminal 4, away from Terminal And I felt there was just an anger in me. There was just explosion. There was stuff coming out of me that I, I wouldn't want to share publicly again, that I needed to confess and deal with, with the Lord after that point. Anger is there. It's, it's there for all of us. And Jesus is saying, if you struggle with it, if you end up calling anyone a fool, which I'm sure I did, referring to the designers of Heathrow Airport, why on earth would you put Terminal 4 all the way over there and you've got to get to Terminal 3 and this lane of traffic? And what is that fool doing? Anyway? He's saying, if you call anyone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Talk about raising the bar. Jesus takes it all the way. The fires of hell, Gehenna, a place, the rubbish tip outside Jerusalem where they would just put, it was a constant sort of fire. There was constant stench, smoke rising from it because the fire was lit and there'd be a worm that literally just wouldn't die, would just consume everything that was there. And Jesus is saying that is the destination for someone who even calls someone a fool. Why? Because Jesus is saying, if you do these things, even if you don't murder someone, if you think it, if you feel it in your heart, then you are breaking the law. I don't know about you, but hearing this standard, seeing this standard that Jesus is holding before us, this mirror, seeing myself looking back, doesn't it make you glad of Christ's righteousness? Of that perfect, pure Righteousness that we get to cloak ourselves in. What theologians call the imputed righteousness of God. That when we put it on, God doesn't see us and our sin, but he just sees the perfect life and purity and righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ upon us. And he accepts us. And he says, welcome home. Come on in, my son, my daughter. That's the point of Jesus' teaching. That's why he raises the bar so that we would glorify him, so that we would recognize that it is him and he alone who can fulfill this life. Remember a few weeks ago we spoke about 
Just imagine all the laws and commands and holiness regulations of God, if they could all be bottled up somehow and poured into a human being, what would that person look like? It would look like Jesus. And Jesus alone. He is our righteousness. But not just that. What's, what's the solution for us? Well, Jesus spells it out. Yeah, he, he wants us to trust in him for ultimate salvation. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ tonight, if you believe and trust in him as I did 18 years ago, coming into that church with a history of anger, with someone saying, what's he doing here? I was there because I put my faith in Jesus the Savior. I'd clothe myself in Christ, in his righteousness, and that hope for glory that he brings. And yes, Jesus wants us to accept that for ourselves and ultimately be seen that way. But he also wants us to be transformed in the here and the now. And to live a life that's different to the world around us. To live a life of holiness. And he says, if you want to live that life, then you can act. And you can act now. In fact, he commands us to act immediately. The response, if you struggle with anger, if you've been calling people moros or uh, raka, harboring these thoughts, simmering in your heart. Jesus says, go and put those relationships right. And go and do it now. Jesus says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. It's hard for us to imagine what that meant just how that would have hit home to his audience, a Jewish audience, because what he's talking about is people going to the temple to make themselves right with God. Going to the temple, ironically, to deal with their sin, the stuff, the badness in their hearts, the stuff they've done or not done. And walking, taking that lamb from outside the temple that they've bought, that perfect, pure, spotless lamb, taking it into the temple, taking it into the courts of the Gentiles, the first section you go into, Going beyond that, walking into then the court of the women, as far as the women could go. Then the court of the men. Jewish men could go that far. And then there was an area that only the priests could go. And every, every person was allowed, when making sacrifice for themselves, to approach that far. And come to the altar to offer that sacrifice for their own sin. To speak over them, their deeds and misdeeds. To be cleansed, to be seen as acceptable and righteous before God speaking, confessing their sins on that animal, and then that animal being sacrificed for them so that they could be accepted by God. That's the picture being painted. But the shock is that Jesus says, if you get that far, if you walk through the temple, if you're all prepared and you're ready to go, and the, the priest is raising his knife to kill the animal on your behalf. But if you there remember that you have something against someone else, or that they have something against you, then go. Leave your gift at the altar. Go and make things right with that person. And then come back and make your gift. In other words, Jesus' point here is that reconciliation on a human level precedes worship with God on a vertical level. This is God. This is what God's saying. 
you know, you may be hearing that and you might be thinking, oh, dear, you know, Anna on drums might, oh, gosh, it's inconvenient. I'm on drums. I, I should be playing drums after the talk is a response. But I need to go and make right. I'm making this up, by the way, <laughs> with my mum or with my friend. Or even Tim, who's, who's coming to lead the response, the prayer response afterwards. What God's word is saying, if he remembers now, even right now, before doing that next stage of our worship time together, that, that he let fly at his son or a daughter or hold something against a neighbor. He doesn't. But if he remembers that, then, then God's word is saying, leave now before you go any further in worship. Before you bring your gifts to me, before you use your gifts for me. If you're on the pack down team and you're going to be helping tonight, my desire would be like, if, if the Spirit of God is resting on you, if he's speaking to you saying, you need to put something right on the horizontal level, the relationship level, then go and do that. That is the priority. Reconciliation precedes worship. God is not interested in your gift that you have to offer him or your use of gifts for him or your financial gifts to him or to his church until you've put things right in your heart. Isn't that amazing? So if you are here tonight and that hits home, you have my permission to just get up and go. One of the few times I'll give you permission to get up and walk out of one of my sermons. In fact, that happened the other day. I was giving this talk a few weeks ago at the 8.30 and uh, saying, if, if you need to leave, then leave. And I got up to prepare communion and one of our congregants had left. <laughs> he had to go and put things right. That's what God's word is saying. That's how important it is to us. God loves our gifts, but only to the extent that we are in good relationship with other people. So a simple question. How are your relationships? How are mine? God's interested in them. He came to make them right and to make them better. We all want to be part of a transformative church, don't we? Being transformed and being part of a, a movement, a body of people under God that's transforming other people. Don't we? And so often we're asking the question, especially as a start, we're always wondering, like, what can we be doing? What can we, where can we up? And where can we find the sort of incremental gains? And, you know, do we need, you know, to look at this sort of worship team or the worship equipment? Do we need a new sort of guitar or something? Or, you know, is it the speaker? If we, have, if we just had this surround sound speaker, that would be amazing. Then God would move. Or, you know, maybe if we, if we had a, a new entrance to the church, if we had a building project and that was the entrance facing the green and not that silly entrance over there and we had a new loo and all of that, then God would move. Don't we do things like that? We always think of other things and circumstances or gifts or material things that, well, God's word to us today is the thing that would bring greatest transformation to our church and to the world around us would to be, to have transformed relationships, to be reconciled to one another and to those in our wider spheres.
our wider lives. That's what God is after. That's why he came. That's why he gave his life. And he's not here tonight to condemn any one of us for falling short. He knows we fall short. He knows what simmers in your heart. He knows what words come out of your mouth. But he says it's all right. I satisfied that bar. I fulfilled that law for you so that ultimately you don't have to. But if you will listen to my words, if you will receive freely of my spirit, allow me to live in and through you, you can be one who truly lives a life that glorifies me and builds your house on the rock. Isn't that? the people we want to be. Amen. Why don't we stand together? Tim and Joe.